God of grace, mercy, and majesty, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So then, this story. Man has two sons. The older one stays home, the younger one goes away into a far land, and this younger son, the prodigal son, squanders his inheritance and comes crawling back to plead for mercy. His father welcomes him home, joy, and a great banquet. But then the older son, bitter, refuses to join in the festivities. Scripture text today deals with themes of reconciliation and peace, and not just peace, but peace within the home, peace within the family, peace through reconciliation. Paul writes about reconciliation, as we just heard, uh, as a special kind of ministry, as a unique kind of ministry that we have specifically as Christians. In his letter to the Corinthians, we just, as we heard, he, he writes that God reconciled us to God through Jesus Christ. Now God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. And so complementing this is the parable from Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. It's probably the most widely read and widely preached on parable from Luke. And there's not a whole lot of new light uh, to be shed on this story. So I'm not going to try to hit you with some kind of revolutionary uh, upending of common understanding. But it's a, it, it's a good story, but it's a frustrating story. It's painful. It seems backward, and it seems unfair. And... Um, you know, I'll say, I think it seems like today um, a lot of television programs recently, or movies, are about bad behavior, bad people getting ahead in life. Uh, um, a lot of, in fact, I think a lot of movies these days seem to lack a clear protagonist, a, you know, a good guy. The parable, this parable could be lifted from a script of a, of a program like that. I think if I had to name it, I would call it the parable of the irresponsible enabling father. <laughs> the parable of the hardworking older brother who got cheated. The parable of the lazy but adventurous young man who had everything in life handed to him and never even really said thank you. So, who is Jesus talking to when he is telling this parable? We're standing there, overhearing it. God wants us to hear this. Who else is in the audience? Who's Jesus talking to? Well, there's two groups of people, the Bible says, gathered together in one place. And Jesus is telling the parable to both of them at the same time. <clears throat> the two groups are, on one hand, the tax collectors and sinners, and on the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees. All right, well, these two groups are <laughs> on lousy terms. To begin with. Yet on the one hand, you got sinners, and on the other hand, you got the church folk. The parable is aimed at both of them. Perhaps it's meant to remind the sinners, tax collectors, other, other dissolute, I think is the word this parable uses, to remind them that they can come home. They can always come home. Perhaps it's meant to remind the church folk, the scribes and Pharisees, uh, that God will always receive the sinners who come home. 
but I'm most interested in getting to the heart of what the parable means to us personally today and how we can act it out in our lives. Because I've got, uh, I think, uh, probably via this broadcast, uh, about an even mix of church folk and sinners. I saw a postcard the other day. It was evangelizing folks to a little small town church in a village, and they were trying to get their pews filled up again after this long absence, this long time away after COVID. And a little postcard, it, it said on it, are you the sort of person that refuses to go to church because it's full of self-righteous hypocrites? Well, we're only halfway full, at, so we could use your help getting the rest of the way there. Well, that's a church with a good sense of humility. The applicable question for us today, whether we're a good church folk or lowly sinners, is whether or not we want to go to the party. That's it. Whether or not we want to go to the party. It's a choice that we have to make for ourselves. And it's a choice to live into reconciliation and peace or hostility and frustration. Let's illustrate the choice. First, from the perspective of the sinful young man, and then from the perspective of the hardworking older brother. And I promise I'll go sit down. The young man, far from being just impetuous or adventurous, he's a really nasty piece of work. I'm the sort of person per, that I always try to see the best in, in a person. And I've got a habit of saying, yeah, they probably didn't mean it when they said it, probably just came out wrong. Or whenever somebody says something particularly asinine to somebody else, I'll jump in and say, hey, you know, charge it to their head, not their heart. In other words, they're not being mean, they're just dumb. <laughs> I like to cover for people. I like to get people off the hook because it's easier to think that people are naturally good in their hearts rather than naturally sinful, broken down, tired. But this young man, he's... Whew, he goes to his dad, and he says, let me have my inheritance. He says literally from verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. In other words, he basically says to his dad, drop dead. Or I wish you were dead so I could have the money that's coming my way when you do keel over. I'll never understand that. It's coming my way stuff. The way people get so tied up about inheritance. I want to shake this young man and say, you did earn it. Your father did. Go out and earn your own money instead of expecting the previous generation to hand it to you on a plate. Well, these days, he probably would get the inheritance and then he'd gripe about having to pay taxes on it. <laughs> As if he earned it himself. All right, I'm digressing. The father isn't even dead yet, okay? And he says, Dad, sell half of your working farm and give me the money. This young man views his father as a means to an end. He's selfish. That's, that's what it comes down to. He, worse than that, he's entitled. Entitled. He's got his inheritance coming to him, he thinks. He's entitled. Anyway, he takes this earthly wealth and he goes off to a distant land and he squanders it on stupid stuff. Buying, he's out there buying NFTs and Bitcoins and stuff. Anyway, no, he's working on it. He gets, things get rough. He ends up broke. He's working on a pig farm, feeding the pigs, starving, lonely. He wants to eat the food he's feeding to the pigs. This is the moment. This is the moment where he has to make a decision. Some folks, I think, especially in the 12-step communities, they have a term for this. Right? This is his rock 
bottom. He's reached rock bottom. There's nowhere lower for him to go. But I'll tell you something, and you can put this in your pocket. Even when a person reaches rock bottom, and it's clear to them and everybody else, through their own self-destructive behavior, there still exists in them the glowing embers of pride. Pride is like the foundation of all sin. Pride goeth before the fall. Pride is the very first sin. Pride is the last holdout of broken heart. Pride was the first sin. They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be like God. Prideful. Lucifer was cast down out of heaven because he wanted to be like God. Pride is self-worship. It's elevating the self to the position of godhood. So thinking, this is the thinking of people go around describing themselves, I'm a self-made man. It, no, you're not. This is the notion. As, as, as though any human being could make themselves out of the dust and breathe air into their own lungs and then create their own blessings and raise themselves up to success without a, a community, without a nation and a God who loves them. So our young man, here he is, he's reached rock bottom but he's got one last battle to fight. If he's going to get into the banquet, if he's going to go to the party, he's got to conquer his pride. And he's prideful. It's a battle. But he makes it. He makes it. Verse 18, he says, I will get up and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like one of your hired hands. He lets go of his hubris and he replaces it with contrition. Contrition. And then he is raised from the dead. If we're called to a ministry of reconciliation, and if it means asking for someone's forgiveness, we've got to swallow our pride. Peace in the home means swallowing our pride. We, sometimes we get so prideful, and we've got another word for it. Sometimes we just call it getting defensive. Don't be so defensive, we might say, when what we really mean is, please stop being prideful. Pridefulness is a very popular sin in America. In fact, in America, people, get, people take pride in stuff that they had absolutely nothing to do with earning or achieving. I, I know Americans that are prideful about where they were born, as if they accomplished it. Anyway, when the younger son is able to own up to this, in a very, sh in a remarkably short time, he goes from a path of darkness, hunger, and deprivation to a path of restoration, well-being, and peace. Reconciliation means swallowing our pride. And perhaps Jesus is preaching this for the benefit of the sinners that are there in the, in the crowd, but maybe he's sharing this for the benefit to show them a way out and back into a life of abundance and grace. Because even sinners in need of repentance can be prideful. And it's the last thing that's standing between them and a life for the ages. But what of the older brother? What are the scribes and Pharisees there in the crowd, the good church folk gathered there? I call them the rules followers, the uh, hall monitors of life, hard workers. The elder brother, 
dutifully serving his father. Never asking for a thing in return. And his ridiculous little brother comes back from abroad after nearly getting himself killed through his stupidity. And now this, insult of insults. And I can't say it any better than he does. Listen to what he says. Listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command. You've never even given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And this, when this son of yours comes back who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now notice here, he doesn't even recognize him as a brother. He, he calls him this son of yours. It's not fair, he says. Not fair. He doesn't go to the party. What is standing between the older brother and the party? What's keeping him out? Oh, it's the rub, right? It's the same exact thing as keeping the younger brother away. Pride. His pride won't let him out from underneath his bitterness. I work hard, pay my taxes, I play by the rules. Because of that, I can't enjoy what I have unless he gets what's coming to him. That's pride, if it's anything. The desire to dole out rewards and punishments in this life as though we were like God. But the ministry of reconciliation calls us to something else. To abandon the prideful belief that we are capable of judging whether or not a person deserves redemption. Pride stalks our homes, prevents reconciliation, and it breaks our hearts because it makes us hold on to anger. You know, I saw... I saw someone post on social media the other day, which I don't know why I go there. It's nothing good ever comes from going on social media. They posted on the internet that it broke my heart when I read it. They posted a picture that said, I don't hold on to grudges for long, but I remember facts forever. It's just sowing the seeds of bitterness. The Buddha, uh, the Buddha said that holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So... Who are you angry about? Who wounded your pride? See, being reconciled means that we do acknowledge the facts as we see them. We acknowledge the situation. We don't pretend that things aren't as they are. Then we go to the party anyway. We go to the party anyway. Because we can stand on our pride and we can stay out in the cold for as long as we want to. Uh, or we can confess as Christians that grace is God's. God's alone to give. And then we get to go into this really great banquet. Well, we know for a fact that the Pharisees present that day were not prepared to hear that particular message. They thought they knew the difference between who was in and who was out, and they didn't want any part in this so-called banquet. Which brings me to my final point, and then I'm done, I promise. We must choose. We have to choose. Remember, it's always a choice. God never compels us through force. 
It's always an invitation, always a choice. We must choose whether we want to sit stubbornly outside the gates, standing on our pride, or whether we want to be reconciled and enter into the kingdom of God. A life of patience, peace, and forgiveness. How this week, let's uh, make a reconciliation. I don't know where you need it. We'll help create peace in our homes, maybe even in our communities, maybe even, who knows, maybe someday in our nation. Whether we are being called to abandon our pride and go and ask for forgiveness, or whether being called to accept another person's contrition and follies and then welcome them back into our lives. It's our choice. I encourage you all to choose peace. So let all God's prodigal wandering children say, Amen.